Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 34. This is our Messiah speaking. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. That's some text there, isn't it? Amen. I want to point right out here at the beginning of this lesson that our Messiah did not say those words to just one person. Most of the time when we hear somebody mention sell your belongings or your possessions and give the money to the poor, our minds, if we're familiar at all with the Bible, our minds go to the rich young ruler. But that's an entirely different account. Matthew 19, Mark 10, and in this gospel, you find that in Luke chapter 18. Well, this one here in Luke chapter 12 was spoken to his disciples. You can verify this by going back to verse 1. He spoke this to his disciples. And also it says there was a crowd of many thousands of people. I've never spoken to many thousands of people, so I don't know what that feels like. But he spoke to a crowd of many thousands of people, the text says. Also, while he was speaking to this crowd, somebody hollered out to him while he was teaching. And they said, Teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Evidently, this fellow had an issue or a problem with his brother wanting to divide the possessions that they had gotten from their dad. And Yeshua responded to this man. He said, Friend, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He then told them, all of them, that whole crowd, he said, Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. After that, in Luke 12, he goes on to tell the parable of the rich, foolish man. I read that last week. The main point here is that Yeshua's words about selling your possessions and giving the money to the poor, those words were not aimed at just one person. He spoke those words to everyone that listened to him that day. Thousands of people. So you might ask, what do you think his words mean, Brother Matthew? Well, I don't know how he could mean anything other than to sell something that you have and give the money away to the poor. Now we'll get back to this text at a later time. I've been wanting to teach on something called almsgiving for about a year or so. And after I taught last week's lessons, I taught both on the Sabbath and the new moon last week in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. I thought, well, after I taught on that, there's no better time than the present to teach on almsgiving. I talked about collecting for ourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on the earth. I also talked about how no person can serve both Yahweh and money. And then I talked about the good eye and the evil eye. And I showed you based on the scriptures how that, that is a Hebrew idiom for a person who is generous in giving. That's the person that has the good eye. Versus the evil eye is a person that's stingy and holds back their wealth. 
So the conclusion that I came to in that text and teaching is that the way that our Messiah taught us to collect treasures in heaven or store up for ourselves treasures in heaven is to give away our treasures on the earth. That sounds backwards to the carnal mind. But it sounds backwards too for Yeshua to save everybody through dying on a cross, doesn't it? Well, it sounds backwards for us to give away our treasure on the earth if we want to collect treasure in heaven, but Yahweh's ways are not always the ways of man. So, one thing I'm going to suggest beginning in this sermon is that the amount of almsgiving, money, time, love, mercy, and compassion that you give away to people, specifically people who are poor or in need, hard times, that amount determines how much treasure that you'll receive in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe that there are levels of hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I taught on that when I went through Matthew 5.19 about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the least in the kingdom of heaven. I dissected that. I also, after studying my Bible, the more that I study my Bible, I also now believe that there are levels of treasure in the kingdom of heaven. Actual wealth in heaven that is stored up in a heavenly storehouse in the strong box of Yahweh. And the more generous we are with our wealth on the earth, the greater treasure we'll have in the kingdom of heaven. And the less generous we are with our wealth on earth, the smaller the treasure we will have in the kingdom of heaven. I will also be showing in these lessons why I believe that almsgiving, giving to the poor, is a type of a sacrifice equivalent with an animal sacrifice and that there is a sense in which it brings about atonement or the forgiveness of sin now I know that's a lot to take in that might be the first time a lot of you have heard that but I just ask you to hear me out in this lesson and the next two lessons I'll teach this month I realize that some of what I'm saying and some of what I'm going to say in these lessons is going to rub some Protestants the wrong way. Protestants, by Protestants I mean people that began in maybe the 13th to 16th century began to protest some of the teachings of Roman Catholicism. I'm going to be agreeing more in these lessons with the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church on almsgiving. So what I want to do now is ask any hardcore Protestants to let down their guard and take off their Protestant glasses, set them to the side, and let's let the Bible be our guide. Um, we should stop rejecting something just because a Catholic believes it. That's not how you determine the truth. You don't look around and see who believes this and who don't believe that and figure out what you're going to believe. You just let the Bible be your guide. I'm going to say something controversial here, so hold on to your pew. Some people have focused so much in Christianity. Some people have focused so much on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah that they cannot see anything else the Bible teaches. They're still at that same level they were at 30 years ago. And they can't graduate to any level because they have this blinder on that only allows them to see that one thing that the Bible teaches so any verse that talks about good works or how we can gain favor with Yahweh by something we do, 
those verses get thrown in the trash can, explained away, laid to the side, never talked about in church because people think that you are trying to add to what the Messiah did for us. Now listen, what Yeshua did for us was perfect. He was the perfect Messiah and without His life, death, burial, and resurrection as now to the high priest, he's have a, He has a high priesthood in the heavenly tabernacle. Without all of that, none of us would ever be saved from our sins and none of us would ever gain eternal life. But that's not the only thing taught in this book. There's other teachings in here. For example, it was Yeshua himself who said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. That's what he said, not Matthew. I mean, anyone in here, the Messiah said that. And believing in the Messiah doesn't just mean believing in what he did for us. It also means believing in what he taught. If you don't believe in what the Messiah taught, you have a deficient belief system. So it's time that we stop worrying about who believes this or who believes that. I had a person tell me the other day we were talking about the subject of hell, I believe it was. And when I explained to this person what I believed about hell, their first response was, well, if you believe that, how is that different from a Jehovah's Witness? And I had to take a deep breath because the Scriptures teach me to be kind, right? And have my speech always with grace, seasoned with salt. And I don't want to get too frustrated. But I asked them, I said, what does it matter if a Jehovah's Witness gets something right? They can have things that's right too. What does it matter if a Roman Catholic gets something right? They can have something that's right too. Why can't we just read and study the Bible and believe what it teaches? I don't pick and choose what I'm going to believe by looking at different groups that exist and saying, well, if that group believes it, I can't believe it because I don't like that group. I don't do that. I determine what I believe by letting Holy Scripture be my guide. So when we talk about justifying works like Brother James does in James chapter 2, or we talk about earning something by what we do, people gasp. <gasps> but the Bible does say in the New Testament in James chapter 2 that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now I know there's nuance and there's understanding and exegesis to that text, but that's what it says. That's what it says. Leave it where it's at. Let it lie. Don't try to explain it away. Just believe it. Even if you don't know how to harmonize it with other texts, just believe what it says. Just believe what it says. Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? That's what a New Testament epistle says. Let's believe that text just as much as we believe Romans 3 or Romans 9, so forth and so on. So I'm asking all of us to stop trying to make verses fit a denominational position or a system of belief a group has. The worst thing you can do is get a denominational belief or system of doctrine in your mind that disallows you from being able to believe Bible verses. Got to wipe all that away and read the Bible and say, I'm going to believe all the verses. Now, before I get to the meat of my lessons, I want to talk to you about what got me interested in this topic about a year ago. It was the Apocrypha. Now, I think I might have heard another Protestant gasp. 
Yes, those books that used to be in the King James Version of the Bible back in 1611. That's got to be my go-to response when I meet somebody that's King James only and I ask them, are you, are you King James only? Yes, Matthew, I'm King James only. The 1611 kind? Yes, 1611, King James only. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? They say, yes. And I say, my first question comes from the book of Maccabees. And they back up because they don't believe in the book of Maccabees. But yet it's in the 1611 King James Bible. As a matter of fact, I brought a facsimile. I've had this since I was a teenager. This is not an original. Original would probably cost me thousands of dollars today. It would be a treasure on the earth, wouldn't it? But this is a facsimile of the 1611 King James Bible. And in this Bible contains books that we commonly call the Apocrypha. Maybe one day I'll teach on why that's not the best name for them, but through tradition and history, they came to be called apocryphal books. But they're in here. So anybody that had the 1611 Bible that was Protestant, not just Catholic, not just Orthodox, but that was Protestant, talking about Baptists, Presbyterians, they would have had the book of First and Second Maccabees and Judith and Tobit and Susanna, Wisdom of Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon. They would have had those books in their Bible. The early Geneva Bible of 1560, the Bible that the pilgrims used, the ones that sailed over to the New World on the Mayflower, the 1560 Geneva Bible contained the books of the Apocrypha. Those books were not really removed from the Bible until the late 1800s. Those books that all the earliest Christians read and quoted from just as much as the other books in the Older Testament <coughs> Those books that are actually in the Greek Septuagint text that we have, which was the primary text quoted by the earliest Christians that we read about in the New Testament, because when you compare the quotations of the Old Testament to how they quoted it in the New Testament, you see that over 90% of the time the quotation matches the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in those Greek texts that we have, the oldest copies of the Greek Septuagint are contained the books that we call the Apocrypha. And those books, books which millions of Orthodox and Catholic Christians have believed to be part of Scripture for almost 2,000 years. Now, there are actually 11 footnotes in the New Testament portion of the 1611 KJV, 11 footnotes that refer you back to the Apocrypha. You know how you get them footnotes in the middle of the page or at the end of the page? Were they a cross-reference? Well, there's 11 times in the New Testament that refers you to the books of the Apocrypha here in the, in the 1611. In the Older Testament, there's 102 footnotes in the middle or the side of the page that refer you or cross-reference you over to the Apocrypha, making a total of 113 footnote references to the books of the Apocrypha in the books that we consider to be the canon of Scripture. Some people say, well, the Jews never considered those books to be Scripture, Brother Matthew. And my answer or comment to that is that the Jews never considered Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be Scripture either, but you believe those books are Scripture, don't you? We're talking about unbelieving Jews because the believing Jews actually did quote from text of the Apocrypha. I can even show you where Yeshua quoted from a book in the Apocrypha. 
Furthermore, it's not true that all unbelieving Jews rejected these books. There are discussions about the wisdom of Sirach, which is a phenomenal, excellent book. If you like Proverbs, you'll love the wisdom of Sirach. There are discussions about Sirach in Jewish literature, and it's quoted authoritatively by some. I don't want to go into a lengthy defense of these books in this sermon. I'm just pointing out that something that I read in these books that we don't normally consider to be part of the Bible got me thinking about almsgiving or giving to the poor, and it was the book of Tobit. It was in the 1611 KJV. That book's about a man named Tobit and his family who was living as exiles after the Assyrian conquest of Israel. And in the book of Tobit, there's a lot of discussion about almsgiving, giving to the poor, along with prayer and fasting. The word alms is not used much today as it used to be used. We use the word charity now. We give charity to a group or to a person. But you've probably heard it before in an older movie or book, Alms for the Poor. When I was putting this lesson together, it made me think about the old cartoon movie Robin Hood that I watched as a kid where Robin Hood dressed up as a beggar and he goes up to the sheriff of Nottingham and he says, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And he tricks the sheriff into thinking that he's a poor beggar. The word alms actually comes from the Greek word, if I pronounce this right, elemasune. Now, we look at that and we wonder, how in the world did we go from Elemasune to the word alms, but it comes about through the process of transliteration because sometimes translators will actually transliterate common words. I'm not saying they necessarily should do that, but sometimes it happens. That's how we get the word baptize instead of wash or cleanse. It's because they transliterated the Greek word baptizo into English for baptize. Well, they did the same thing here with the word alms. And then they shortened it down. But this Greek word, elemasune, is used throughout the New Testament to refer to pity, mercy, compassion, and specifically on poor people or people who have hit hard times. So the beginning of the word goes from Greek to Latin to Old English and then to Modern English, and it gets shorted. I have it underlined, elemas and alms. And you kind of hear the similarity there. But that's where we get the word alms is originally from the Greek word that is used in the New Testament. So, for example, in Acts 3, 1 through 3, in the English Standard Version, we read, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Why was he asking to receive alms? Pity, mercy, compassion, money for himself. He was lame. He'd been lame from birth. In the book of Tobit, Tobit gives his son, his son's name is Tobias. He gives his son Tobias some instructions and some advice for life in chapter 4. It's beautiful advice for life, beautiful instructions but I'm only going to read verses 7 through 11 because that's the pertinent part of this lesson. One of the instructions that he gives to his son Tobias is this. He says, Do almsgiving from your possessions to all who do righteousness. When you do almsgiving, do not let your eye be envious. Do not turn your face away from any poor man. 
so the face of the Almighty will not be turned away from you. Do almsgiving based on the quantity of your possessions. If you possess only a few, do not be afraid to give according to the little you have. You are storing up a good treasure for yourself in the day of necessity. For almsgiving delivers us from death and prevents us from entering into, dark, into the darkness. Indeed, almsgiving is a good gift for all who do it before the Most High. So in Tobit 4, Tobit tells Tobias, almsgiving delivers from death. Now I want to couple this with Tobit 12, 8 through 9. And this is actually a quotation from an angel named Raphael. Sometimes when I talk to people about the angel Raphael that's mentioned in the Apocrypha, they start getting worried. But we got angels in the Bible called Gabriel and Michael, so don't be afraid. <laughs> So this angel is called Raphael. You'll find the name of this angel all through Second Temple period Jewish literature. It's very common. And Raphael says, Prayer is good with fasting, almsgiving, and righteousness. A few prayers with righteousness are better than many with wrongdoing. It is better to do almsgiving than to lay up gold for Almsgiving rescues one from death, and it will wash away every sin. Those who do almsgiving and are righteous will be full of life. Now, when you bring this up to a lot of Protestant commoners, theologians, scholars, whatever, if they're Protestants, they say that this is error. Some call it heresy to say that giving to the poor washes away every sin. So, when this was brought to me as to why the book of Tobit should not be considered to be part of the Bible, I thought to myself, well, that sounds strange. It sounds different. But it's not wise for me to just reject it outright without studying it. That wouldn't be a wise man to do that. Just to say, well, I don't like that. I reject it. I'm not going to follow the book of Tobit. Why not just be a Berean? I thought to myself, Matthew, just be a Berean. Spend some time studying this. Examine the scriptures, the ones that I already consider to be valid and authoritative. Examine those scriptures to see if there's anything in the scriptures I believe in and accept to validate what the book of Tobit says. Well, first off, in Tobit 4, 8 through 9 again, it says, Do almsgiving. You are storing up a good treasure for yourself in the day of necessity. That sounds an awful lot like Luke 12, 33, where our Master and Savior said, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's the same thing as do almsgiving. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. In other words, the heavenly money bags never grow old. An inexhaustible treasure, Tobit says a good treasure, in heaven, and I think that's parallel within the day of necessity. Both texts speak of storing up treasure by giving to the poor, and I believe that both texts speak of heaven. The day of necessity, what I think that means is good works will be necessary for a great reward. I think the day of necessity is the resurrection of the righteous. Now, it could speak of hard times financially that we have on earth. If we've been given to the poor and storing up heavenly treasure in, in heaven, Yahweh can disperse a little bit of that out to us on the earth right now. <laughs> but we'll get most of it when we make it to the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this in Tobit, in Luke 12, 33, and think back to my last lesson in Luke 14 where Yeshua gives instructions about when you have a banquet or you host a dinner. 
Remember, he says, don't call your friends or don't invite your rich neighbors. And the understanding is, don't only invite them. He's not saying you can't invite your friends, okay? He's saying, don't, don't only invite them. Don't let that be the people that you always primarily invite. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, cannot repay you when? Here on the earth. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the righteous. That's talking about payment, wealth, because of these dinners and banquets that you hosted and you called people over that couldn't repay you back. Yahweh will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. Strong box in heaven, heavenly treasure. We'll look at many, many more comparison verses in later lessons. As I close today, I want to show you something in the book of Daniel. Now, we view Daniel as a prophet of the Almighty. We view the book of Daniel as Holy Scripture. We can even look to history, not just biblical history. We can look to history recorded in Josephus and other texts, and we can find that some of the things that Daniel prophesied actually took place exactly like he prophesied them to take place, specifically with Antiochus of Epiphanes that came in. You can read about that in the book of First and Second Maccabees. So that validates Daniel's prophetic office. Well, in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled Babylon at that time, when Daniel was one of the captives in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in this dream he saw this huge tree grow up out of the middle of the earth, and its top reached the sky, and it had these huge branches and leaves and fruit that would grow on it. And everybody would come from all over the earth, and they would eat of that fruit. And wild animals would rest under the shade of the tree, and birds would make their nests in the branches of that tree. And then, after he saw that tree, an angel came down and said, Cut the tree down, chop the tree down chop off its branches, scatter its fruits, drive all the animals away, but leave the stump in the ground and put a band of iron and bronze around the stump. And then that angel told Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, let the dew fall on this man. Then he goes from talking about a tree and he refers to a man. Let the dew fall on this man and let him live with the animals and the plants. For seven years he will not have a human mind but the mind of the animal. So Daniel listened to the king and interpreted this dream. All the royal advisors and the wizards and everybody that served under Nebuchadnezzar, they came in first and they heard the dream and none of them could give the interpretation. But prophet Daniel could. The Hebrew. And as he gave the interpretation he said this. He said, Your Majesty, King Neb, as I like to call him, you are the tree. Your kingdom is vast. Your power reaches across the earth. But you will be driven away from society. You'll lose your mind. And you'll be given the mind of an animal. You will eat grass like an ox. And then after seven years, you'll admit that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And he sets up kings and he takes them down and no one can stop his hand. Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful king. He didn't give glory to Yahweh. So Yahweh brought him down. And for seven years, he lived out in the wild until his claws grew out like an animal and his hair grew like feathers on a bird. You can read about this in the book of Daniel. 
So that ought to make us not want to be too prideful, shouldn't it? <laughs> I definitely don't want to have the mind of a wild animal. Then in Daniel 4 and 27, why am I bringing this up? Daniel 4, 27, this is what Daniel tells him after he interprets the dream. Listen to this. Listen to this. World English Bible. Daniel says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. I'm going to give you some counsel, king, what to do. And break off your sins by righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. If there may be a lengthening of your tranquility. Now, there's some Hebrew parallelism in this verse in Daniel 4.27 whereby the same thing is said in two different ways. Number one, break off your sins. How? By righteousness. That's one way to say it. The second line is saying the same thing in another way. And your iniquities, break off your iniquities. How? By showing mercy to the poor. So sins and iniquities are parallel. And righteousness and showing mercy to the poor are parallel. And Daniel is telling the king that the way to break off his sins, which is very similar to the speech in Tobit about wash every sin away, the way that he is to do this is by almsgiving. Now it's even more powerful in the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the book of Daniel, which remember I told you this would have been the Older Testament for the earliest Christians. There it's found, this is the Brenton translation of the Septuagint. Daniel 4, verse 24, it says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel please thee and atone for thy sins by alms and thy iniquities by compassion on the poor. It may be the Almighty will be long-suffering to thy trespasses. So Daniel is telling the king that the way to atone for his sins of pride, exaltation, thinking he can't be touched, thinking he can't be brought down, is to humble himself and give alms to the poor. And I think this can go two ways. Number one, he's a king. So in his rulership, in his vast rulership over the kingdom, he's supposed to be practicing justice and righteousness in the land as a whole, setting up righteous laws and instructions for everybody to follow so that the poor is not taken advantage of, right? But he could also be telling King Nebuchadnezzar, you yourself need to be giving alms to the poor personally. So, if we're going to reject the book of Tobit for teaching this, then we're also going to have to reject the book of Daniel. Well, I have not rejected either book so far. But I'll show you next week that if we're going to reject Tobit, then we also have to reject Daniel. And I will show you that we will also have to reject Deuteronomy. And we'll also have to reject Proverbs. <laughs> because little have I known in my life the whole Bible teaches this. The New Testament teaches this and the earliest Christians all taught this and believed this. I have slowed down and re-examined some of my preconceived ideas about alms, offerings, and atonement. And this is just part one. I plan on teaching three sermons on this subject. So I do promise to share many, many more scriptures with you. I hope that I've given you something to chew on and think about. Um, receive the word with eagerness and then examine the scriptures daily to see if these things be so.